Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth. This is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right. I'm your host, Melissa Canchola. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. And we're going to get started right now with Dr. Vodi Welcome and the 144,000. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, as we continue our journey through this often neglected letter. Prayerfully, we are becoming more and more aware of how much of a detriment it is to neglect this letter because of the encouragement that we find herein. Here in chapter 7, we come to one of the most familiar and yet perplexing passages in Revelation. If anybody knows anything about the book of Revelation and numbers in the book of Revelation, one of the numbers that they probably know is 144,000. Amen? You may not understand to what that refers. They may not understand the significance of it, um, but everybody's heard of this number of 144,000. And there are varying views and opinions on the significance of this number ranging all the way from uh, cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses who uh, hold this number in high esteem as the number of people who will end up in heaven, uh, the rest being on the new earth, um, all the way to the most common and most familiar interpretation of this passage of Scripture, which we will address today, that being the idea that this 144,000 represents a remnant of Israel who is saved and sealed after the secret rapture of the Gentile church in order that they might make it through this period known as the Great Tribulation. Somewhere in the midst of all of that is where we will land on today as we examine this passage of Scripture here in Revelation chapter 7. But as we look at this passage, we must be struck by the fact that it comes at a very awkward time because we've just gone through Revelation chapter 6 and we've seen these seals opened in rapid fire and this judgment upon the earth. And after the sixth seal, we see the greatest of these judgments. And there, beginning at verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and here's the question, who can stand? This is our question today. Who on earth can stand? 
And in the midst of this picture of the wrath of God, there is a breaking point between the sixth and the seventh seals. As we look at this picture of the wrath of God and this question, who on earth can stand, I think it's important for us to look at it in light of recent events in our own culture. Recently, all eyes have been turned to Connecticut and to the slaying of these 28 people, 20 of whom were elementary school, kindergarten-aged children. And I'm always fascinated at times like this because, in general, we live in a culture that does not believe in the judgment of God or the wrath of God. In general, we, believe in a, we live in a culture that rejects God because of the idea of a wrathful God. We reject God because we reject the idea of a God who judges sinners. But all of a sudden, when something like this happens, we believe in evil again, and we believe in judgment again. Not because we believe what God has said, but because we find our own sensibilities violated. This is not because we value life, but because these are children who barely had a chance to get started. This is not because we have a sense of righteousness, but because it was a school where people ought to have felt safe. We live in a bloody deadly, calloused culture that does not value life and that does not believe in the wrath to come. And it is only out of convenience and our own personal sense of anger that we are calling for any justice whatsoever. And interestingly enough, we always call for justice just on the other side of the door. What I mean by that? What I mean by that is the wrath of God and the justice of God is deserved by all of those who are just a little more sinful than I am. Those who would do things that I would never do are the ones who deserve the wrath of God. Now, me, I don't deserve the wrath of God. Those whom I know, those whom I love, those whom I respect, we don't deserve the wrath of God. But only those who would violate my sensibilities deserve the wrath of God. The reason we believe that is because ultimately we believe that we are God. I set the standard. I draw the line. By the way, that's the only way that most people can make it through. Because the moment we realize the reality of Revelation chapter 6, we have to ask the same question. If I understand what God's standard of guilt is, if I understand what it means to be deserving of the wrath of God, if I understand that I thought and said and did things on yesterday, for which I deserve every ounce of the wrath of God in Revelation chapter 6, what that ultimately leads me to is this same question. Who then? Who can stand? 
And John answers that question. And his answer is not people who've never killed children. His answer is not people who've never committed adultery. His answer is not people who've never cheated on their taxes. His answer is not people who fill in the blank. His answer has absolutely nothing to do with a human standard of behavior. His answer has everything to do with the sovereignty of Almighty God. So, we read in our text today, Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw, that's important, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. So he saw four angels. He saw another angel. Important. With the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard, I saw, I saw, I heard. Now he hears. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. I saw, I saw, I heard. Remember the question, who on earth can stand? When you look at the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the justice of God and recognize that we are all sinful creatures and that every last one of us deserves every ounce of the wrath of God poured out in Revelation chapter 6. And again, After we get through this, we will see another picture of this wrath being poured out again, and yet another picture of this wrath being poured out again. Once we realize that, the question is, how do we escape this wrath? Who can escape this wrath? And the answer that John gives is those who are sealed. There are several questions raised by this passage of Scripture, and we need to answer those questions in order to understand it. The first is, what does it mean to stand? Who, who, who can stand? To remain unharmed in the tribulation? Well, it can't mean that. We know that it doesn't mean that, because one of the things that we read about earlier in chapter 6, and one of the things that we'll read about again throughout this book of Revelation, is this number of martyrs. So it does not mean that you'll be unharmed in the tribulation. Because one of the things that we see in the tribulation and one of the themes that is carried throughout the book of Revelation is this idea of the completion of the number of martyrs who will be killed. So to stand does not mean that you will be unharmed. 
does it mean to be saved out of the tribulation? That is a common idea. It's the most common idea in our culture. We have been inundated with the dispensational reading of the book of Revelation, with the futurist reading of the book of Revelation, uh, the series of books and movies, and we've talked about these before. And this idea of the secret rapture of the church prior to this great tribulation. We've already seen that the idea of tribulation begins there in chapter 1. John is speaking about the tribulation as something that has already come and that is already occurring, not something that is going to come. So it doesn't mean it will be saved out of the tribulation. We know that also because of the sealing of this 144,000 at this particular period in time cannot mean that they're going to be saved out of the tribulation. It means to be saved through and in spite of the tribulation. To be sealed so that you might be saved through the tribulation. That you might be saved in spite of the tribulation. A salvation that is much more meaningful than your physical body not experiencing difficulties, but a salvation that means much, much more. Revelation 5, 1 through 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. If you remember, that scroll and its seven seals had to do with two ideas. One, the idea of the justice and judgment of God to be poured out against sin. This is important, especially in the light of the martyrs who continue to ask when they're going to be vindicated. God is going to vindicate his righteousness and pour out his wrath and judge sin. By the way, that's why we don't have to vindicate ourselves. Amen? But second, there's this idea of the scroll and the seal being broken as an inheritance. This is a picture of a document that is a will, and there is an inheritance. So justice and judgment and the inheritance and salvation of those who belong to God. That's the idea behind the scroll and the seals. So what this means is that God's judgment comes, and yet, in spite of the fact that his just judgment comes, those who are his are saved. Those who are his are protected. Those who are his are rescued, not in the sense that we don't experience difficulty, not in, the spirit, not, not in the sense that we escape tribulation. There's nothing here that would indicate that we escape tribulation, especially when you recognize the fact that we are in the midst of tribulation. The tribulation is not something that is coming. The tribulation is something that is here. Or did you not hear the news? about people being gunned down in a school. But where, where, where do we have to get? Where do we have to go? It is here. It is now. All the things that we talked about in Chapter 6, we've seen and continue to see. 
on an ongoing basis. We're engaged in military operations right now that have taken over a million lives. See, you don't hear that. All you hear about is the American losses. A few thousand American losses. That's bad enough. These operations in which we've been engaged in the Middle East have cost over a million lives already. That's the kind of stuff we're reading about here in Revelation. It's here. It's now. This kind of death and destruction, it's here. It's now. But there is a final day of judgment that is coming. What does it mean to be sealed? It means to be known by God. Notice this very specific idea there in Revelation chapter 7, that God knows those whom he is sealing. He's not waiting upon people to seal themselves. Amen? God knows whom he seals. Those who belong to God. God is identifying these individuals as his. There's also this idea of the contrast between the seal and the mark. This seal that God gives to those who are his and this mark of the beast that are taken by those who worship him. This seal that ends up with people being able to stand in an ultimate sense in spite of the tribulation, and this mark that ends up with people being judged as a result of having taken it, those who are protected by God. You see this in Revelation 9, 4. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. It is also those who are kept by God. We see this because of what follows immediately after and also what follows later on in chapter 14 as it relates to this number of individuals, these people who are sealed. They are kept by God. In spite of the tribulation, they are kept by God. Even those who are killed, even those who are martyred, this seal means that even being martyred cannot separate you from God. Is this not what Jesus talks about in, 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 in John 11? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he actually what? Live. That's what this seal refers to. Those who are preserved through the tribulation. That's the idea of the seal. But as we look at this idea of the seal, we have a curious list. And we have to answer questions about this curious list. But before we answer questions about this curious list, there's another issue. And the issue is, why do we have chapter 7 breaking up the seals? Because at the end of chapter 6, it looks like the judgment is final. It looks like the judgment is finished. Chapter 6 has moved toward a crescendo, and we get to the crescendo, and all types of individuals, from the greatest to the smallest, from kings and rulers all the way down to those who are poor and those who are slaves, are saying, let the mountains come and fall on us and cover us up, because who can stand? Ultimately, it seems as though we ought to have the end of chapter 6 
and then go into the new heavens and the new earth because this is it. God has wiped everything out. But after that, we go to chapter 7, and we have some curiosities here. One curiosity is this. Why would God now be sealing people after he's already judged everybody? If we're going chronologically. If you go chronologically, you go through chapter 6, and you've had all of this judgment. God's basically finished pouring out his judgment. And now we get to chapter 7, and they say, who can stand? And God goes, here, I'm going to seal these 144,000. Well, how are you going to seal 144,000 when basically judgment has been completed? But here's what you need to know, that this is not chronological. When we get to chapter 7, we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 6. It's as though we've walked through these judgments of God that are being poured out, and the question comes, who can stand? And then John sees a picture that harkens back to the beginning of chapter 6. It's like a flashback, if you will, in a book or in a movie. It's a flashback that goes back. You come to the end and you go, well, that's it. Nobody made it. Nobody got out. John goes, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. There are some who made it. No, absolutely not. There's nobody who made it. There's nobody who got out. Because, I mean, these four horsemen came, and then all this other stuff happened, and people were dying, and all this stuff. Nobody made it. They're going to make the mountains fall on us and so on and so forth. Then notice back at the beginning what he says. After this, I saw. doesn't necessarily mean that after this, this happened in a chronological order. It means that he saw it after this. After this, I saw at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Huh. So now you see these four angels at the four corners of the earth. These four angels correspond to these four horsemen that we saw at the beginning of chapter 6. What's going on is this sealing is taking place before all these judgments are taking place. And the hearkening back to these four angels in these four corners is showing us that we're going back in time. This goes back to Zechariah chapter 6. Listen with me, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. So now we have four chariots drawn by horses. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. He's pointing back to the same terminology, the same theme in another apocalyptic book of these four chariots drawn by four sets of horses to the four winds of the earth. Now we have these four angels holding back, as it were, the four winds on the four corners of the earth before a judgment is coming. The picture here is of them standing ready because they've been given authority to execute judgment which makes absolutely no sense chronologically because it's already happened in chapter 6. The only way this makes sense is if the question comes at the end of chapter 6, 
and then we go back to the beginning in chapter 7 in order to answer it. Who can stand? Those who are sealed are the only ones who can stand. By the way, we, we need to put a footnote here. You, you know, if you, you cut me, I bleed apologetics. I have conversations with people about these types of things all the time. And this, this one just screams because of these four angels at the four corners of the earth. There's a common misconception that the church believed and taught that the earth was flat. Many believe that it was texts like this one that led to that assumption. The fact is, the church never taught the flat earth theory. Let me say that again. The church never taught the flat earth theory. That is a myth. In 1945, the Historical Association of Britain published a pamphlet on the 20 most common errors in history. Number two was the idea that Columbus set sail to prove that the earth was round over against what the church was teaching, which was that the church was flat, and that Galileo was actually persecuted by the church for teaching that the world was actually spherical and not flat. It is a lie. It is a myth. It's easily disproven. It never happened. And yet, people still point to it. Here's the argument by evolutionists today. The church once believed dogmatically that the earth was flat. The church was proved wrong by Galileo and then by Columbus. The church now believes that the world was created in six days. The church has been proved wrong by evolution. And so evolutionists will say, yeah, you're still holding on to that. You guys used to hold on to the idea that the earth was flat. It's not true. It's never been true. That doesn't stop some of the most intelligent, well-educated, degreed people in the world from making this fallacious argument. It ain't true, folks. Church didn't teach a flat earth. Galileo was not persecuted for believing that the earth was round, and Columbus did not set out to prove that the earth was round. It was already known, believed, and taught that we lived on a spherical earth. Now, back to our text. Here's the question that we have to answer. What about this curious list? Let me give you four basic beliefs about this list, and then I'll deal with the one that I believe to be correct. Some view this list as literal and take it to be a Jewish remnant sealed after the secret rapture of the church. That's the most common view of our day, that this is a literal list, and this is the Jewish remnant that's sealed after the secret rapture of the church. Now, the secret rapture of the church is very important and very necessary because the idea is that God has two peoples. He has, he has the Jews and he has the church, and that originally his people, the Jews, um, Christ came, offered the kingdom to the Jews, the Jews rejected him. God went to plan B, which was the church, which is only a parenthesis uh, in, in, in history. And that parenthesis has to be closed so that God can go back and finish his work with the ethnic nation of Israel. So the rapture occurs, the church, the Gentile church is taken out of the world, and then God can go back and deal with his people, ethnic Israel. And this list of 144,000 um, listed specifically here from tribes in Judah is uh, offered oftentimes as a proof text in that regard. 
Again, that is the most common position taken by those in our culture today. Secondly, and related to that, some people think that this list um, is linked to the prophecy in Romans 11, 24, 26. It says all Israel will be saved. And they go back here to this list um, and connect it to Romans chapter 11, which is rather difficult because those who argue uh, that this has to be a literal list of literal ethnic Jews do so because of their insistence that we have to take a literal approach to the book of Revelation. Um, And if they're doing that, and we've only got 144,000, that doesn't match with all Israel. Then it still would have to be a symbolic number, a symbolic number of 144,000 representing all of Israel. So you would still have to accept symbolism there. Thirdly, some see this list, very few, but some see this list as a remnant of ethnic Jews living during the first century. And finally, some see this list as figurative, pointing to the people of God as a whole, who are sealed and who make it through the tribulation. I'm arguing for that fourth position. I do not believe that this list of 144,000 is literally referring to ethnic Jews. I do not believe that there's anything in the book of Revelation that supports the idea of a secret rapture of a church before tribulation. That's conjecture based solely upon the fact that we see chapters 1 through 3 dealing with things on earth, and then we see chapters 4 and 5 dealing with things in heaven. The conjecture is that there's been this rapture that's taken place between chapter 3 and chapter 4, nothing in the text that says so. Nothing anywhere else in the Bible that teaches so. Absolutely nothing that teaches that the church will not be present during tribulation. And in fact, Revelation chapter 1, John says he's our partner in the tribulation. So he can't be talking about tribulation as something that's future if he already believed that he was our partner in tribulation. I believe this, this is a figurative list that refers to the people of God as a whole. First, let me give you problems with the idea that this is a literal list, and then I'll explain why I believe that this is a figurative list. Problems. Number one, there are irregularities with the list. Let me just give you seven irregularities, since seven is such an important number in Revelation. One, the list in this form of the tribes of Israel is not repeated anywhere else in the Bible. You won't find this list in this order or with this particular collection of names repeated anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place you find it. It is utterly unique. Secondly, the list is out of birth order. The list is out of birth order in more ways than one. Now, Judah's listed first. That's not all that strange. We see that before. We know Judah's significance and his importance. But then after Judah, you have Reuben. After Reuben, you have collected together the sons of the concubines. And then after that, you have the sons of the legitimate wife. And then the other wife that was added on. So it's out of birth order. It's not listed in birth order. 
Thirdly, Joseph is included, which points to the list being sons and not tribes. You understand that there's a difference between the sons of Jacob and the tribes of Israel, okay? Joseph's name is listed here, which seems to point to the idea that we're talking about the sons of Jacob and not the tribes of Israel. But Manasseh is included, which points to tribes and not sons, because Manasseh was one of Joseph's twin boys adopted by Jacob, who become the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh and replace Joseph and Levi when it comes to the distribution of the land. So Joseph's there, which says this ought to be sons and not tribes. Manasseh's there, which says this ought to be tribes and not sons. Well, Ephraim is excluded. If you've got Manasseh, then you ought to have Ephraim. Ephraim is excluded, which points to sons and not tribes. Dan is excluded, which has no apparent precedent whatsoever. Why is Dan not here? Why Manasseh and not Dan? Does John not know? Now, surely he knows. He knows both the list of sons and the list of tribes. Levi is included, but they didn't inherit land, which points to sons. Do you see my point? The idea that this is a literal list and that we're to take this literally as 144,000 uh, Jews who are sealed after the rapture of the Gentile church is problematic because of the irregularities in the list. Second, a familiar promise. There's a familiar promise here. In chapter 3, verse 12, we hear this. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Here's a picture of this ceiling, if you will, that we find in chapter 3, which refers to, church, to, to, to a church that is not simply an ethnic Jewish church. Thirdly, this would be the only place in the book of Revelation where you have the idea of the servants of God, meaning a particular ethnic group and not all servants of God, regardless of ethnicity. The term shows up 13 times, and it always refers to the people of God by faith, not by ethnicity. This would be the only time. So it would be the only time that the names are listed like this anywhere in the Bible, and it would be the only time in the book of Revelation that that identification of servants of God refers to ethnicity only. Also, there's the parallel between chapters 7, 5, and 14. Chapter 7 comes in between these two chapters. In chapter 5, we have a picture. In chapter 14, we have a picture, both that have elements that you find in chapter 7. Listen here in chapter 14. This is very important because in chapter 14 you find that 144,000 again. Listen to this very carefully. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Now we got this idea that the 144,000 are all virgin men. 
That's a problem. Amen? All of Israel will be saved, 144,000 virgin men. How do you get that from here? This is the remnant whom God is saving out of Israel after the secret rapture of the Gentile church. All male virgins. Doesn't fit. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That phrase occurs again and again and again. has to do with the people of God. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. They've been redeemed from mankind, from all of mankind, not just from ethnic Israel. The 144,000 in chapter 14, not limited to ethnic Israel. Chapter 5, some of the same language, beginning verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, see that? It's parallel. It's parallel to what we find in the second half of chapter 7, what we find in 14. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Where's this 144,000? On the earth. So the parallel between chapters 5, 7, and 14 mitigate against the idea that this is a literal list of 144,000 ethnic Jews. Also, it's a symbolic list. We know this because of the way that numbers are used in the book of Revelation. There's a better answer, I believe. I understand that the other answer is compelling. Seems more straightforward. And that's the argument that people have against taking an idealist view of the book of Revelation. Now, well, if, 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 if the numbers don't mean what they literally mean here, then what do you do with numbers in other parts of the Bible? Next thing you know, you won't be believing in you know, literal creation and literal this and literal that. Um, we read Revelation symbolically because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that it's symbolic. We're told to read it symbolically. So the only way that you can read Revelation literally is to read it symbolically, because in verse 1, it literally says it's symbolism. First, the idea that this is a symbolic list can explain the irregularities in the list. I can't find another way to explain the irregularities in the list. I, I just I, I can't get there from here. But if this is a symbolic list, there are several things that start to make sense. One, the easy one, Judah is first, not fourth. Why? Because he's pointing to Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah that we already read about earlier on, especially in chapter 5. That's why Judah is listed first. He has the preeminence here because we are talking about the Messiah and him saving his people. That's the easy one. Reuben is second, not first, because he was disqualified from his position of preeminence. But he's still listed second behind Judah so that there's the idea that Judah has replaced him in the birth order, which makes the third one very interesting because now you don't have the rest of their brothers. They don't go Judah, then Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi. 
if all you're doing is taking Judah out of order and putting him first, you would go Judah, and then you would go Reuben, and then you would go Simeon, and then you would go Levi. That's not how they go. Look at how they go. First Judah, then Reuben, then Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and then Manasseh. So he doesn't do that. But what does he do? He puts the children of the concubines right after Reuben. So Reuben's there so you know that Judah is first because of his preeminence in birth order. But after Reuben, you have the outcasts who are put in the list before everybody else. Why? Because this list is not about birth order. It's about redemption, and even the outcasts are redeemed. Amen? Four, the tribe of Dan is excluded. Why? What is the tribe of Dan known for? Leading the people of God astray and leading them into idolatry. And leading those ten northern tribes, by the way, to lose their ethnic identity, which also makes it impossible for this to be a literal list. See, those, those ten northern tribes lost their ethnic identity. Dan is excluded from this list because of idolatry. Remember what I said earlier? There is the seal, and against the seal, there is the mark. How do you get the mark? Idolatry. Who's left off the list? The idolater. That's why he's left off, because of the idolatry of the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Manasseh is included. Manasseh, the son born to Joseph in Egypt, and his wife, who was the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Manasseh's mother is Egyptian. Manasseh's a Gentile. Why is Manasseh added to this list? Because Gentiles are included in this list. That's why. This is not just ethnic Jews. This is a list of the people of God, the all-encompassing people of God. The tribe of Levi is included, which eliminates the idea of simple replication of the land grant. This is not just about the land grant. He's talking about on the earth, but he includes Levi. Levi doesn't have a land grant. Why do you include Levi? Because this is about the new Jerusalem, not about the old land. Amen? That's why Levi's included here. See, if this is a symbolic list, this makes sense. If it's not a symbolic list, how do we answer those questions? Not only is it better at explaining those questions about the list, but it also jives with the use of the number 12 and the number 1,000 elsewhere in Revelation. What is this? 12 times 12 times 1,000, or 12 times 12,000. The number 12 occurs again and again and again in the book of Revelation. It's an important number. Revelation 21, 12 through 14, just listen to this. Talking about the city. It had great, a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were included. On the east three gates, and the north three gates, and the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Now you have those four corners again. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Six times the number 12. Just in that short statement right there. The number 12 is extremely important. But how is the number 12 used in Revelation to refer to the complete people of God. It's always the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, the 24 elders. 
When the number 12 is used and multiples of the number 12, it is the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Therefore, it makes sense that this use of the number of 12, which is multiplied by 12 and by 1,000, which would refer to the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Multiples of 12, 24, we already talked about that. The number 1,000. Now, again, in order to contemplate this number 1,000, you have to understand that these people didn't live during our time or in our culture. We've been jaded. We've been talking about trillions so long that the number 1,000 doesn't bother us. Amen? And some of you just live long enough for the number 1,000 not to bother you. I remember um, when, when, when I was in, in college and I got a, a job and, and um, I was trying to make some money and I wanted to make some good money, so I went and found a, a sales job. And I had this guy who was training me, you know, as a, as a salesman, and um, I, I sold a lot of stuff. I sold cars. I sold cutlery. I sold, I just, I sold a lot of stuff. And so this guy who was training me as, as a salesman, I remember he was trying to encourage me and to motivate me. He was a guy a little bit older than I was. So here I was, about 20, 21 years old, and he's a little bit older than I was. And one of the things he did to encourage and motivate me was he showed me the copy of a check that he had kept because it was the first check that he had ever written for $1,000. He was like, you too could write a check like this someday. Back then, before mortgages and cars and kids and everything, I said, dude, I could write a $1,000 check one day. Not so impressed with those anymore. We get jaded. Put yourself in this context, though. They're not dealing with numbers and the billions and the trillions like we are. This is a huge number. Twelve times twelve times a thousand. What's another way to say that? I believe another way to say that is what we're going to talk about on next week, a number that no man can number. Just a huge number. It's symbolic. The number 1,000 is important as well, especially as it relates to judgment. The 1,000-year reign of Christ, the 1,000-year binding of Satan, and so on and so forth. This also harmonizes with the rest of the chapter. If this is a symbolic list referring to the people of God, then what happens here is almost identical to what happens earlier on. Earlier on, before the throne, we see the lamb who was slain. And in the very next section, we see the lion of the tribe of Judah. Same individual referred to two times by two different identifiers. That's a pattern that John has used already in Revelation, and it's a pattern that we see here in chapter 7. First, there's 144,000. 12 times 12, we've seen, we've seen multiples of 12 before. We've seen 12 and 12 put together before. 12 and 12 referring to the fullness of the people of God, right? Now we see this number 1,000 attached to it. And in the very next scene that we're going to look to on next week, they're before the throne, and it's this innumerable multitude. Repetition of the same idea in a different way. But don't lose 
the glorious promise in all of this. We get caught up in trying to determine to what does this number refer? Who are the 144,000? How are we going to know the 144,000? If we get caught up in that tedium, we miss the greater point. What's the greater point? The greater point is that there's an answer to the question. Then the answer is not nobody. Amen? Who can stand? Those who are sealed by God can stand because there is nothing that will separate them from the love of God. Not height, not depth, not sword, not principalities. Nothing will separate them from the love of God. Why? Because they've been sealed by God. By the way, what's the seal? It's the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance. By the way, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Two ideas to breaking seals. One, releasing judgment. Two, opening a, opening a will so you can read what the inheritance is. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee or an earnest of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the seal. By the way, the word that he uses here, that word guarantor, earnest. I like to use the word earnest because we still use that word. When you are buying a house, you sign an earnest money contract. What is your earnest money contract? You go and you see the house and you say, I want to buy the house. And you write a contract, and your contract says, I will buy the house at this price. You attach a check, and the check says, here is money to let you know that I am serious. I'm so serious that if you accept this contract and I don't show up on closing day with the rest of the money, you get to keep both the house and my check. What does God say to those who are saved? Put earnest money down on your salvation. That earnest money is the third person of the Trinity. He is a seal, a promise, and a guarantee that I will show up on closing day and redeem that which is mine. If he doesn't show up on closing day, he loses his earnest money, which is the third person of the Trinity, which means that the only way a Christian can lose his salvation is if God stops being God. That's not going to happen. That's how secure this seal is. Nothing that we've read in Revelation chapter 6 will break the seal that God has on his people. Amen? Nothing that you experience in your life can break the seal. Nothing that goes on around us can break that seal. No matter how horrific things get around us, God is still God. God is still on his throne. Where was God when those children were being killed? Same place he was when his child was killed. That's where he was. Seated on his throne. Not surprised at all. 
waiting the moment when his justice will be enacted. And for those who want the justice here and now, be careful what you ask for. Because if God gets rid of all wickedness tonight, none of us is here tomorrow. But for those who are sealed, for those who have been purchased by the Lamb, for those who are His, here's the great promise that we have. The one who comes to exact justice is also the one who has sealed us. He's also the one who died to save us. He's also the one who has gone to prepare a place for us. He's also the one who's coming again to receive us unto himself. He's also the one who will take us away with him. He's also the one who is our bridegroom. He's also the one who is our only hope. He is the one for whom we wait. This seal that we have is not just so that we can have a better here and now. This seal that we have, have reminds us that we are living for a city whose builder and maker is God. belong to him we will always belong to him there is nothing that can make us not belong to him my admonition to every one of you is to be sure that you belong to him that you come to him in repentance and faith that you turn from your sin and from your idolatry. That you turn from trusting yourself. That you turn from believing the lie that there are evil, evil people out there that you have to worry about, but no evil person in here that you have to worry about. The evil that is of greatest concern to you ought to be your own. And the only hope that you will ever have of that evil meeting with anything other than the just wrath of God is being sealed against that great day through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died to purchase pardon for those who place faith in him. Let's pray. Are humans animals? This is Ken Ham, speaker and author on the Bible's reliability and authority. Are humans just animals? Well, that's a popular belief, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You see, that comes from the idea that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. But God's word says humans are different from the animals. We're made in God's image. No animal bears God's image. Only humans do. And the Bible says mankind was given dominion over creation, including the animals. We aren't like them. We have dominion over them. And when Adam named the animals, he realized there were none like him. So God created a woman, Eve, just for him. No, humans aren't just animals, and we didn't evolve from them. We're specially made by God in his image. There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. 
Find answers to your questions about science and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. What you're hearing is commonly referred to as speaking in tongues, but it's not. It's just gibberish. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to pray like this. In fact, there's not one verse in the Bible that encourages praying in tongues. What about the book of Acts? Well, the gift of tongues was given to share the gospel so everyone could hear it in their own language. What about 1 Corinthians 14? Well, it's there, Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. He doesn't encourage praying in tongues. He's discouraging the practice. But verse 39 says, don't forbid speaking in tongues. Right. And the context is to prophesy, not private prayer. What is the gift of tongues for? It is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers to hear the gospel spoken in their own language. Read every passage on tongues with that understanding. It's not a prayer language, and it's especially not incoherent babbling. Jesus said, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans do. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus prayed clear prayers, and so should we, when we understand the text. It was St. Augustine who first gave an in-depth theological exposition and formulation of the distinction that we have between the visible and the invisible church. And as old as that concept may be in church history, it is still subject to much misunderstanding and confusion. In this session, what I want to do is to take us back to the fourth century and try to gain a deeper understanding of the significance of that distinction. I've already mentioned, at least in passing, about the phenomenon that we experienced in America in the decade of the 60s with the advent of the so-called underground church, which uh, which people who were involved in that movement expressed in many times at many times a disdain for the visible organized church and somehow they saw themselves as being a conscious alternative to the visible church and by virtue of their loose organization and so on many considered that they were the invisible church. Well, that reflects, I think, a serious misunderstanding of what St. Augustine had in mind when he made this uh, historic distinction between the visible and the invisible church, because in the view of the 60s, it was as if they had, there is this one circle or sphere that we call the visible church, and then outside of it, external to it, uh, would be another group of people who would make up the invisible church. This is not at all 
what St. Augustine had in mind with the distinction. If we're going to use the image of the circle, the circle would look more like this, that here we have the invisible church. And in fact, what I'll do is erase that and give you a, uh, a clearer picture of it so we can make it a little bigger. This is the invisible church. And then this second circle would be the visible church. Now, we would have to make one slight emendation to that, and that is I'm just going to take this little blip out like that, as it were, and, uh, and see that in addition to this circle, there is this circle, we'll just leave it like that, out there. Now, what this image is trying to show is this, that for Augustine, the invisible church is something that is found basically and substantially within the visible church. There may be this little blip out here that is floating, uh, independent, if you will, of the visible church, but this represents an extremely abnormal and unusual phenomenon. What Augustine would include in, in that little blip outside the visible church would be people, for example, like the thief on the cross, who was converted in his hour of death. He had no opportunity whatsoever to align himself with some visible institution. There was no uh, opportunity for church membership or even for baptism as he hung on the cross in preparation of death. We know certain, certain times in history, at points of crisis, people were dragged away from society, thrown into prison or in some kind of isolationist position, solitary confinement, alone in a concentration camp where they have no possible opportunity to align themselves with a body or a group of other Christians. And yet those people who are truly members of the body of Christ because of their faith and so on, they remain, at least for a season, outside the visible church. Now there's one other possibility uh, by which a person could be in the invisible church and not be in the visible church. And that is the person who is truly a child of God, truly regenerate, has authentic, salvific faith in his heart, but in his spiritual infancy or spiritual immaturity, he has a seriously defective view of the church. Maybe he has been disappointed in his local congregation and he has not yet uh, been exposed to the teaching of Scripture. He's a new convert. He said, I don't want to make the mistake of uh, falling into the trap of institutionalism and so on. And so by personal decision and choice, he avoids entrance into the visible church. Now notice I said that that would be a temporary, short 
term problem that would be indicative of an infant Christian uh, bending over backwards here. I'm describing a hypothetical possibility of somebody who just simply doesn't know any better. But we would assume that once that person even had a cursory reading of the New Testament, if he were indeed regenerate of the Holy Spirit, he would hear the voice of his Lord commanding him to be a part of his body, and his disobedience at this point would be short-lived. Portrait that I've given here then, the basic portrait of the two circles, the visible church and the invisible, by which the invisible church is seen as being substantially within the visible church, I have drawn these concentric circles without any particular view to proportion. Because these people and the outer circle are people who are church members. That is, their names are on the rolls of the visible church, but they are not children of God. They are unbelievers. They remain outside the kingdom of God. They're part of the visible church community, but they are not part of the invisible church which Augustine said is made up only of the elect, only of those who have been called, not merely externally through the preaching of the gospel and so on, but those who have been called eternally and internally by the work of the Holy Spirit and brought to true faith. Now, again, the reason for this distinction at this point is that Augustine said that the church is a body, a corpus, as we've already seen with the concept of the corpus Christi, the body of Christ, but that it is a corpus per them, that it is a mixed body. Now, this was not a judgment that Augustine learned empirically or inductively by canvassing the members in his bishopric and looking at their behavior and saying, well, you're a believer and you're not. No, no, no. He drew this conclusion, of course, from the teaching of Jesus that is found so clearly in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of the condition of the church as including a mixture of tares or weeds, if you will, that live and grow along with the wheat. In fact, though Christ institutes a process of church discipline that involves the expulsion from the membership of the visible church, those who are engaged in gross and heinous sin, nevertheless, Jesus put certain constraints upon how church discipline is exercised, and the process is a kind of process by which the church virtually bends over backwards in its care not to 
hastily excommunicate someone out of fear that the uh, weeding process is done indiscriminately and brutally to the end that someone who is truly a child of God is wrongfully cast out of the body of Christ. And so Jesus, though he does institute excommunication, fences that process with great care and great caution, basically saying this, it is better that the church continue living in the presence of weeds growing among it than that in our zeal to purify the church, we ruthlessly rip up the wheat whom God has planted and destroy them along with the tares. The other image, of course, that Jesus uses is the image of the sheep and the goats. The sheep referring, of course, to those who truly belong to Christ, who truly love him and embrace him. The goats uh, are those who are uh, spurious in their confession of faith. Their profession is false. It is not genuine. It is not authentic. Uh, I once heard the difference between the sheep and the goats as defined in this manner, that when Christ gives a commandment to one of his sheep, the sheep always says, yes, Lord. But when he says a commandment to one of the goats, the goats reply, yes, but, 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 but. (laughs) That's not biblical. That's... uh, that's extra biblical, but I think uh, illustrative. Now, Jesus, again, indicated that it was clearly possible for people to make a profession of faith and do all of the things that are required by the visible church to enter into her membership. A person can go through a communicants class, A person can give a credible profession of faith. A person can receive the sign of baptism and do all of those things that are required for church membership. A person may even give of his worldly substance, be a scrupulous tither, and so so on. Uh, Be involved in the life of the church. Attend the services uh, regularly and punctually. And all of this, at the same time, being without saving faith, being a false professor. Jesus indicated, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, again, the lips and the speech of the lips, the claims of the mouth, are things that we can perceive Outwardly, they belong to the visible or to the audible realm. But the reason why Augustine calls this inner core of true believers the invisible church is because the thing that is invisible about them is their hearts. Again, the Bible says, Man looks on the outward appearances, but God 
looks on the heart. The invisible church, therefore, is invisible to us. It's not invisible to God. Christ knows his sheep. He knows who are authentically his. He can read their hearts just as he read the thoughts of the woman of Samaria and of Nathaniel and all of that. God can read the state of your soul without seeing any external visible evidence of your faith. He knows who is truly redeemed and who isn't. But we don't. We can be fooled. People can make a good outward appearance of godliness. In fact, we call that the problem of hypocrisy. I remember when I first became a Christian and went home to my home church and and I had a discussion in the drugstore one night with a friend of mine who had always been an outstanding student and now he was working on a degree in science at Carnegie Mellon University and he kind of prided himself in his academic skepticism and of course he was not only skeptical but virtually contemptuous of the truth claims of Christianity. And as I spoke to him about my new found faith, he exhibited disdain for my naivete and, uh, and mocked me for uh, my convictions. And I remember how troubled in spirit I was. I was personally wounded by it because he was a friend and so on. And the next morning I went to church. And I looked across the aisle, and there was my friend in church with his parents. And I just watched him, and I noticed that when it came time for the Apostles' Creed, that he stood just like everyone else. And I said, I believe in God the Father Almighty. He said it for anyone who was present to hear it. He gave an outward profession of faith. He honored God with his lips, while the night before he had expressed to me his utter contempt for the faith. I was examined by the presbytery for my ordination trials. One of my friends who was going to be examined that same day as we awaited the summons to come and stand before the whole presbytery, which is one of the most intimidating experiences in a young man's life. And as we were nervously awaiting the call, he looked over at me and he said, should I go with the resurrection of Christ or not? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, should I say that I believe in the resurrection of Christ? I said, well, do you? He said, no, no, man. He said, I haven't believed that in years. How can anybody be acquainted with higher critical theories and so on and still embrace the resurrection of Christ? I know that, they, that, that some of those people out there are going to insist that I say that. And he stood before the presbytery. Cross fingers. He perjured himself in terms of what he believed. That we call hypocrisy. The word having its origin in the Greek language, as it was a term borrowed from the stage, from the theater, 
from the person who is engaged in play acting. He's pretending. Well, there are still pockets of our society where there are business advantages and social advantages and other kinds of advantages for being perceived by your neighbors and your fellows as an upstanding Christian. So there are still reasons in our society other than the right ones to give this pretext. And that's always been the case. I'm, I'm astonished when, when, uh, when lay people come to me and they're, they're upset because of some gross act of misconduct that they observed in their pastor or an attitude of unbelief that they heard expressed by their pastor. And they say, he's an ordained minister. How can he do that? Or how can he say that? The tacit assumption of the layperson is, well, if he's a minister, he must be a Christian. And not just a run-of-the-mill Christian, but a profoundly committed Christian. Say to these people, who was it who screamed for the blood of Jesus? Who were those who were most hostile to the historical Christ? It wasn't the sinner. It wasn't the publican. It wasn't the lay person in the community. It was the clergy who were most vicious in their hostility toward Jesus and toward the apostles. That's true in every generation to a lesser or a greater degree. I remember Gilbert Tennant in New England wrote a little book a couple of hundred years ago that was entitled simply, The Danger of an Unconverted Clergy. What I'm saying simply is from the first century to the 20th century, there's always been the clear and present danger of unbelievers present mixed together with the real believers in the body of Christ. And that belief, those unbelievers may, in fact, be heads of the church, the clergy of the church, the bishops of the church, or whatever. That's always a serious possibility. Now, as I said, the proportion of these two circles isn't arbitrary, as I put it up here on the blackboard. There are obviously times in church history where God so renews his church and where the church experiences awakening to spiritual things that the church, the visible church, is comprised almost completely of those who are truly in the faith. But there are dark moments in church history, dark ages, where the church falls into deep, deep corruption and disobedience so that churches become, as the scriptures suggest, synagogues of Satan, where we are fortunate to find the remotest, or presence of the invisible church within the visible church. Remember what happened in the Old Testament. 
The whole nation of Israel was called into fellowship with God. The whole nation participated externally in the visible church of Israel, in the covenant community. But by the time the Old Testament draws to a close, the hope for the future was for a tenth, for a tiny remnant that would still be faithful. And then, of course, there's the danger on the other side. Sometimes we're so acutely conscious of this problem of the visible and the invisible that we even further reduce uh, the possible number of those in the invisible church down to a dot that we require the lamp of Diogenes to discern. And uh, we suffer from what I like to call the Elijah syndrome. Do you remember when Elijah complained to God that he was trying to be faithful in the midst of a people that were collectively unfaithful? Priests and prophets together were going in a completely different path from the prophet Elijah until finally he laments before God, Oh God, I and I alone am left. You heard about the two preachers that say, you know, there's only two of us left here that that are faithful anymore in the sound, and sometimes I worry about about you. (laughs) That's the Elijah syndrome, and God had to rebuke him and say to him, be careful, Elijah. I have preserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. From the vantage point of Elijah, everywhere he looked, he saw people on their knees before Baal. He couldn't find seven, not to mention 7,000. But God knew who is. And so again, the point of the distinction between the visible and the invisible has to do with the state of the soul. Just this morning, I was writing the final chapter of a book that I hope will be titled when it comes out, The Soul's Quest for God. And I was dealing with one of the most terrifying warnings that Jesus ever gives. And that's his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord. And he says, it's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of his Father. And again, he says, they will come saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils in your name? Didn't we do many wonderful things in your name? And Jesus said, on that day, he will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. I'll tell you what scares me about that. Not only that there will be some people on the final day who will come saying, not only Lord, but Lord, Lord. The repetition of the form of address indicates an assumption of a close, personal, intimate relationship. These aren't your Easter and Sunday visitors to the church that he's anticipating are going to come and say, Lord, Lord. 
but people who suppose that they have a deep personal relationship with him. But what scares me is not that to some will, but he says, many. There is a multitude, a great multitude of people who actually believe that they have a personal relationship with Christ to whom Jesus will say on the last day, please leave me. I don't know your name. And they're going to say, they're going to protest, but Lord, I was a preacher. I prophesied. I did miracles. I cast demons out of people. Look at my track record of the wonderful works that I have performed in the name of the truth. Please leave, he says. Because they are defined as those who are workers of lawlessness. Again, they are people who say they love Christ, but refuse to keep his commandments. Now, John Calvin struggled with this distinction between the visible and the invisible, and he said, yes, the heart of the faithful are known only to God. But it is not as if the church is to be a corporation of H.G. Wells's invisible men. Calvin said that the task, the principal task of the invisible church is to make the invisible church visible that those who have true faith are to be a light to the world, to make their faith manifest, that we may bear witness to the Lord whose church we are. Dust to dust. This is Ken Ham inviting you to discover the truth of God's Word at the Creation Museum. Did humans evolve from ape-like creatures? Well, consider this. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought death into creation. And Adam was told, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, God created Adam from the dust of the ground and gave him the breath of life. Once death entered creation, God reminded Adam that he was of the dust and he'd returned to that very dust. God doesn't tell Adam he was an ape man and he'd returned to an ape man. No, he confirms that Adam was made from dust and to dust he would return. There's so much more to learn when you visit us at the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. Kids are free. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com. Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T R U T H B E T O L D 
radio.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. You are going to die. Yes, it is inevitable. Your life will come to an end. If there's one statistic that's true for everyone, it's one out of every one person dies. Then what? Well, your eternal soul will go to one of two places, heaven or hell. But what if I don't believe in such a thing? That doesn't matter. You can say you don't believe in Mack trucks, but if you stand in front of one bearing down on you at 80 miles per hour, it will kill you no matter what you believe. Just as there is judgment in this lifetime, so there is a final judgment in the life to come. How can you know that on the day of your death, you will live forever with God in heaven and not perish under his wrath in hell? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You will die, and you will stand in judgment. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, when we understand the text. Pino, right back across the face of the net, it goes in! A magical header from Megan Rapino. Megan Rapino is a U.S. woman's soccer player who has won multiple awards and has played in the Olympics and in the World Cup. She's a lesbian who's been a strong advocate for homosexual rights, and she's an atheist. She has a huge media platform, a God-given ability to excel at sport, and an assertive personality. I went to a local college and asked this computer science major if he knew of Rapino, and then asked for his own thoughts about God. Uh, she's uh, one of the most famous women soccer players who got a lot of controversy after her final game. After the penalty that she shot, she was smiling and didn't show a lot of emotion. And a lot of people thought that she had just sold the World Cup for that. 
U.S. women's soccer team mm. knocked from the World Cup in the round of 16, earliest exit ever. Megan Rapino missed smiling on the pitch after she missed the penalty kick. It was after she was injured in her very last game that she said that she had proof that God didn't exist. So what was her proof? Obviously devastating to, um, you know, go out in a final so early. Um, you know, I know it's my last game, and that is, you know, devastating as well. But, um, you know, to to go out so early, that also changes things. It takes the sub off of in. You know, taking one of your best players off the field is uh, not ideal. So I thought about it a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just, it's just, God doesn't exist because he failed in his responsibilities. She obviously believes that he's morally obligated to make sure she's kept happy. I asked this college student if there's any proof of God's existence, and this one, as to what it is that God owes us. You'll be surprised at the answer. Then stay tuned until the end because we're going to look at what Megan Rapino did that made her so disliked by so many. I want to leave with a little tribute to Megan Rapino, the world's most annoying sports star who's now retired. But Megan Rapino and her imprint on the team has now really made its mark, and I'm thrilled she's gone. She says, her getting injured is proof that God doesn't exist. Is there proof for the existence of God? That's a very hard question to answer. Do you believe in God? I do. Why? I just find it incredibly hard to um, not think a higher power created all of this. Can you think of any other proofs of God's existence? Because I can prove God to you scientifically in about 30 seconds. Now I'd actually like to hear that. Every building is proof of a builder. The builder could have died 50 years ago. You know there was a builder. Painter could have died 500 years ago, but you know there was a painter because paintings don't paint themselves. So creation is scientific evidence that there's a creator. Flowers and birds and trees, sun, the moon, the stars, seasons, puppies, kittens, fruits, marvels of the human eye, the miracle of the human brain, childbirth, male and female. All these things show us the genius of God's creative hand. In fact, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Every time you look at the sky, you have an intuitive knowledge that God exists. You see the painting of the painter. Now you know how to prove God exists. Everything you have came as a gift from God. So you owe it to him morally to love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. Ever use God's name in vain? I have before, but I believe that, you know, no matter what, God's always going to forgive you. Do you love your mom? I do love my mom. Do you ever use her name as a cuss word? Never. Because you respect her? Yes. You don't respect the God that gave you a mother? You've taken his holy name and used it as a cuss word. Jonathan, that's called blasphemy, very serious in his eyes. Appreciate your honesty with me and your openness. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? My girlfriend, yes. <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I, what sort of mistakes? I have lied. I have deceived. What does God owe you? Anything? No, because I, I feel like here he gave me so much just just through existence. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? 
No, I don't think I have. Oh, then when did you last look at pornography? Maybe half a year ago. That's lust. Mm, yeah, that is. Oh, Jonathan, you've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart, and you have to face God on judgment day. If he judges you by those ten commandments of looks at four, you're going to be innocent or guilty. I would be 100% guilty of the things that I have done. Heaven or hell? I will go to hell. Give us the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death. Yes. And saying God is paying you in death for your sins. They're your wages. Like a judge looks at a criminal who doesn't see the seriousness of murder that he's committed. So the judge says, I'm going to show you how serious this is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what we're paying you. And Jonathan, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row, and your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. Now, can you figure what God owes you? Justice. Like a judge looks at a criminal who's committed murder, the judge is obligated to give him justice, to give him the death sentence, to give him what the law says. And as I said, sin is so serious, God owes you that death sentence and you've earned your wages. So what can you do to escape the damnation of hell? If death seized upon you tonight, what could you say to God to justify yourself? Pray to him, bow to him, beg that, that he will forgive my sins and allow me to do a fresh start. And that, that is what I'm trying to do for myself right now. I, I'm not trying to, to undo the mistakes I did because that is not possible. I'm trying to fix myself, to better myself, to not create the same mistakes again. Transfer that to a court of law where you've committed a very serious crime and you're saying, Judge, I'm so sorry. I plead for mercy. I'm going to better myself from there on. He's going to say, so you should. You're going to jail. So being sorry for your crimes or being repentant won't save you from man's court and it can't save you on judgment day. You need something else. Do you know what God did so guilty sinners wouldn't have to go to hell? No, what did you do? Actually, no, but because you don't understand it, you don't value it. Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross? Yes. How can the death of Jesus help you? It can instill the fear in me of what God can do, and not for his son, but what God can do to me if I don't, if I don't follow his word and what he says. Well, let me share the gospel with you. This is going to be a great relief to you. Jonathan, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you, so don't let anything distract you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine in full. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays those fines. They say you're guilty, Jonathan, but you can leave because someone paid your fine. And it's legal. Even though you're guilty, you get to walk. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off you and let you live forever because Jesus paid the fine in full on that cross and then rose from the dead, defeated death, and the Bible says all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent and trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus like you trust a parachute. If you're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet, why would you put on a parachute? You would save me. You don't want to die. Yeah. And your motivation is fear. And that fear is your friend. It's not your enemy because it's making you put on a parachute. And Alvin, because I love you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today. I've tried to make your mouth go dry and make your heart palpitate, make you scared, hoping you'll see that fear as your friend not your enemy, because it'll make you serious with God and it'll bring you to the foot of the cross where you'll find everlasting life. Is this making sense? It is, totally. You're going to think about what we talked about? Yes. So when are you going to repent and put your trust in Jesus? Well, once I get home. There's no reason to wait as soon as possible. Today? Sure. So you realize what you're doing, you're giving up the battle, you're saying, God, 
I need your mercy, I need forgiveness. Are you sorry for your sins? Yeah. And you say, not my will, but yours be done. You say, I've done things I know are morally wrong. God, please forgive me. And I put my trust in Jesus. And the minute you put your faith in Christ, you've got God's promise and he cannot lie. He'll instantly grant you everlasting life, not because you're good, but because he's good and kind and rich in mercy. Can I pray with you? Yes. Thank you for Jonathan. Thank you for this divine encounter. And thank you for his open and honest heart. I pray today you'll remind him of his secret sins and he'll tremble for fear of you. And at the same time, may his heart be enlarged with the love that you expressed through that cross. And may he find a place of genuine sorrow for his sin and true repentance. And may he see your love expressed in that cross, that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him or trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life, may be born again this day and pass from death to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do you have a Bible at home? I do. Elvin, you, you probably don't realize it, but according to the Bible, if you truly repented and you're sorry for your sins and you're trusting Jesus, God's granted you everlasting life. It's a hard thing to comprehend as just a human being, but that's the promise of Scripture. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, Scripture says. But this will be as real to you as you are with God. If you leave here, get back to porn or whatever you're into and do things that are morally wrong, nothing will happen. Just deceiving yourself. But if you're genuine, truly repent and have put your faith in Christ, God will make you a brand new person on the inside so you love righteousness and that'll be a personal miracle. Everything you look at will look different. The trees will look different. The birds, the sound, the music, everything. Because God's opened the eyes of your understanding and you'll have the knowledge that you've passed from death to life or because of God's amazing grace. Can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? Yes, actually. That would actually be really nice. <laughs> and I'll give you another book called, a little booklet called Save Yourself Some Pain, Principles of Christian Growth, and a Gospel of John that you're going to love. Let me get it for you. I'll really be taking in uh, today what we've talked about with great consideration, and I will fulfill everything we've talked about. Once again, at the Women's World Cup, the U.S. women's national team is proving to everyone why so many people in this country are actually rooting against them. Because for years, they've shown time after time that they despise this country. They don't want to stand for the national anthem. They would rather be kneeling. And once again, they're showing their disrespect on a global scale. They allowed, I think, the woke instincts of Megan Rapino to direct every decision they made. They became polarizing. They became, frankly, quite unlikable, and ultimately that led to, and I think this is important, the single worst performance by the U.S. Women's World Cup team ever. We've watched them game after game, and at most, Clay, at most what I see is from the ones who are, like, phoning it in, maybe a couple put their hand over their heart, they're like, get out of there. You know how many young girls would give anything to represent the United States of America on the world stage in this fashion and would be thrilled to say that they're American and they're representing our values. So even the ones who are like kind of trying are embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of them. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, Available at livingwaters.com.
Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is worship? Perhaps you have thought of worship as singing worship songs, maybe going to church, reading your Bible, prayer. These are certainly ways we worship God, but true worship is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Earlier in Romans, Paul talked about those who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. But Jesus said, you shall worship, meaning bow before the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. God is merciful, forgiving your sins through faith in Jesus. He has offered himself as an atoning sacrifice, so you must offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Turning from sin and living a life of purity and obedience, submitting to the will of the Father as Jesus did, this is worship. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we know what God's will is? By reading the Bible. There Jesus says that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for he alone is worthy of our worship when we understand the text. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian servant woman whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, Yahweh has shut my womb from bearing children. Please go into my servant woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant woman, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Then she saw that she had conceived, so her mistress became contemptible in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the violence done to me be upon you. I gave my servant woman into your embrace, but she saw that she had conceived, so I became contemptible in her sight. May Yahweh judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant woman is in your hand. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai afflicted her, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's servant woman, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of Yahweh said to her, Return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your seed, so that they will be too many to be counted. And the angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him and he will dwell in the face of all his brothers. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, 
And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Genesis chapter 17. Now it happened that when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, so that I may confirm my covenant between me and you, and that I may multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God spoke with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. And no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, one who is born in the house or one who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your seed. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a son? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, as God had spoken with him. Now Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. Now all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Genesis chapter 18. Then Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing nearby. He saw, and he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And let me bring a piece of bread, so that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass on, since in such a manner you have passed by your servant. And they said, So you shall do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Hurry, prepare three seahs of flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to his young man, and he hurried to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree, and they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Then Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Now Yahweh said, Shall I conceal from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have known him, so that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So Yahweh said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? So Yahweh said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, 
then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Then he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Genesis chapter 19. Then the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Lot saw them and rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house from young to old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them what is good in your eyes. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Step aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came to sojourn, and already he is persistently acting like a judge. Now we will treat you more wickedly than them. So they pressed hard against the lot and stepped up to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, from small to great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and everyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become great before Yahweh. So Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for Yahweh will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now at the breaking of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated, 
So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of Yahweh was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. Now it happened as they brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by preserving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest calamity overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small? that my life may be preserved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Then his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before Yahweh. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it happened when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our seed through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Now it happened on the following day that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our seed through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot conceived by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.